You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning, good afternoon, and welcome. My name is Susan Stigant, and I am the director of the programs at the Africa Center at the United States Institute of Peace, which was established by the US Congress in 1984 as a national nonpartisan public institution dedicated to helping prevent, mitigate, and resolve conflict abroad. It is my great pleasure to welcome you to the United States Institute of Peace for this virtual public event. Today, we will discuss the devastating crisis in Sudan with a focus on the violence in Darfur, the steps that are already being taken to monitor and document that violence, the steps to prevent and address further atrocities, and the further steps and action that needs to be taken. We are grateful to be joined today by many Sudanese friends, colleagues, and the general public as well as those from the United States and beyond who have worked in the country in support of the revolution, of the civilian government, and the courageous struggle for peace, freedom, and justice for so many decades. Allow me to acknowledge that this is a topic that is deeply personal for many joining us today. We extend our condolences for those friends, family members, and Sudanese who have been lost in this fight. And we extend our solidarity with those who are seeking safety within or outside the country and working in the most difficult of circumstances to relieve the suffering caused by the war and to silence the guns. For more than 100 days, Sudan has been in war. More than 3 million people have been displaced at the latest count. In many ways, the deaths are uncounted, but some of the latest numbers suggest that well over 10,000 have been killed in Darfur alone. The humanitarian situation is devastating in Khartoum and across other parts of the country, in the border areas for those who are seeking to leave, as well as those who are seeking safety outside. The level, the scale, and the type of violence is in some ways unprecedented, and in other ways echoes some of the worst times in Sudan's own history. Indeed, there are multiple efforts uh, to stop the war coming from many capitals across Africa, in the near region, and around the world. However, none of those has yet got traction that has succeeded in halting the violence or imagining a path back towards a more stable, peaceful, and free Sudan. Today, we will focus on some of the courageous and innovative work that is taking place to put a spotlight on the consequences of this fighting, as well as the courageous work that's taking place to respond and alleviate the suffering and to ensure that the atrocities and the violence taking place won't spread further. Allow me now to introduce Johara Kanu, uh, who works with USIP's programming in East Africa and leads USIP's programming on nonviolent action in Sudan, to take you through the conversation and introduce our panelists for today. Johara, over to you. Thank you, Susan. Thank you for the introduction and happy to be here today among such a distinguished panel. Welcoming all the audience joining us from across the world. Um, as you mentioned, Susan, the ongoing war in Sudan has just crossed its 100-day mark 
In this period, both the areas witnessing direct fighting and host communities in relatively safer areas have witnessed a huge struggle in provision of shelter, food, and health services. While it's still challenging to count the casualties, as you mentioned, according to recent stats by the IOM, the number of the displaced across Sudan has risen to more, more than 2.5 million people in all states, while those who have crossed the border to neighboring countries rose to more than eight, um, 800,000 people. Both groups displaced in and outside Sudan are severely struggling with relocation and resettlement. Additionally, the widespread violence in Darfur brings back the horrors of the early 2000s. Reports confirm mass atrocities, ethnic-based targeting, and extremely dire humanitarian conditions, as some of the communities are witnessing a second or even a third round of targeted attacks and displacement. Additionally, in their 100 Days of Conflict report, the Youth Conflict Observatory Network has outlined that the current war has had devastating impact on the social situation in Sudan. Not only has the conflict result resulted in widespread displacement, loss of lives, and the destruction of homes and communities, it has also deepened social divisions and tensions as different groups are drawn into the conflict. In terms of various actors in the civic space, since the outbreak of the armed conflict between the ASAF and, and RSF in April 2023, at least two journalists have lost their lives and approximately 75 homes belonging to journalists have been raided and looted. Six journalists have been harassed, tortured, and injured. Additionally, 12 media companies were banned from publishing, as reported by the Africa Center for Justice and Peace Studies. The situation for human rights monitors and defenders weren't any better, as they, were having, as they have been witnessing direct targeting, which led to killings, torture, and forced exile or disappearance. From a different angle, the combating violence against women and children unit monitored 108 cases of sexual violence against women and girls in Khartoum, Niala, and Jinena within the first 100 days of the outbreak of the war, with actual numbers forecasted to be much more high. The past period have also witnessed many mediation and political consultation rounds, as you mentioned, Susan, from Jeddah to Addis Ababa, Cairo, Nairobi, and even Lomi, leaving many citizens confused about the future of a mediated solution. From a different side, the Sudanese civil society on the other end have been coming up with numerous initiatives, latest of which is the Declaration of Principles of Civil Actors for Ending the War and Restoring Democracy in Sudan, Restoring Democracy in Sudan, which was endorsed by 75 civil society bodies. In our discussion today, I'm hoping to engage with some of the existing monitoring and reporting mechanisms, their gaps, challenges, and what actions can be taken to move closer towards preventing atrocities. And on the panel today, I'm delighted to host three distinguished panelists who are at the core of monitoring, reporting, and, anal and analyzing the ongoing events in Sudan. The first panelist, Mahasin Dahab, Sudan's program manager at the Sudanese Archive, which operates under the umbrella of mnemonic and is led by Sudanese human rights defenders, researchers, lawyers, and lobbyists with, with, a, with a primary mission to document, verify, and raise awareness about Sudan's numerous human rights violations through powerful open source methods. My second guest would be Caitlin Homworth from the Sudan Conflict Observatory, which was officially launched in June and is using commercial satellite imagery and open source data analysis to remote monitor activities of, war, of the warring parties. This effort is a collaboration among geographic information system companies, ISRI and Planetscape AI, as well as the Yale University's Humanitarian Research Lab. And last but not, but not least, 
Koskandi Abdushafi, a senior regional advisor at Freedom House, with over a decade of experience working on human rights, governance, and peace building and atrocity monitoring prevention. Welcoming you all and looking forward to a fruitful discussion. Um, I would like to, remember, uh, to remind our audience who are joining on the both Arabic and English streams is that it's okay to post questions in Arabic. Our team is ready, is ready to like um, provide translation both ways. Um, so, um, Mahasin, um, many traditional sources like TV and radio stations, newspapers, and international media agencies are unable to access credible data. The Sudanese archive is verifying open source monitoring data and amplifying voices from across Sudan. What stands out in the reporting in terms of violence and mass atrocities that are taking place? Thank you, Johara. Um, hello to everyone who are joining. Um, so in the archive, we understand that we are not chasing news. We are human rights fact finders. We know that the digital archive we are hosting on Sudan presents personal, cultural, and emotional value. In addition, we understand that the digital archives you can, the, the digital archives contain evidence that could potentially be used to pursue in the pursuit of justice and accountability. The reporting by the Sudanese archive stands out. There's a unique focus on verifying open source data and amplifying voices from across Sudan. Um, the process employed by us involves meticulous verification techniques and ensures the credibility and accuracy of the information we present. This approach is crucial in the context where traditional sources often struggle to access reliable data. Um, for us, throughout the past months, um, since the beginning of the war, uh, we have noticed uh, some patterns that are prevailing across Sudan. Um, those patterns are destruction of protected civilian infrastructure, forced migration, GBV, forced marriage, looting, and ethnocentric speech. We have also been noticing um, huge patterns of, of, of networks that are working specifically to distribute misinformation and disinformation on the Sudanese timeline. Um, so, yeah, so thank you. Thank you, Mahasin. Um, and Caitlin, um, since you also use um, open open source um, open source and satellite imagery, and since it's launching the on the 9th of June, the Sudan Conflict Observatory has published five situational reports that track the destruction of infrastructure, mobility, fire events, and population movements through open source satellite imagery. The Sudan Conflict Observatory has also recently issued a report with special focus on the region of Darfur. Based on your monitoring, are there any highlights that you could share? Certainly, and thank you so much for having me today, especially with Mahasa and Akuskandi. There are a number of things that we've been working on. Um, usually there's so much that we're investigating behind the scenes. I hope that people understand that what we're able to publish is usually just a fraction of the material that we're gathering at any one time. I know that's also something that Mahasa also deals with, um, with the archive, the amount of material that is present um, through open source versus the amount that we're able to verify and confirm is usually like very disparate. 
what we are currently working on, and I'm happy to be able to share with you all today, uh, we're about to release a new, a new report that will focus on the events in Khartoum um, from the 15th forward, from basically the beginning of the, of the current conflict onward that will parallel the report that we issued on Darfur. Um, I think that what is important to note in these reports is that we're trying to, obviously our Sudan work is a bit distinct from the work that this team also does on Ukraine. In Ukraine, we, we also focus on longer term trends. In Sudan, we're trying to stay at the pace of the current conflict and at events. Um, that's, a, that's a challenging job for our team to do since they're working really around the clock in order to try and keep pace. But it also speaks to the tempo of destruction and the taking of life that is happening. The sheer speed with which um, events are moving on the ground is really critical and something that I'm going to come back to over the course of our discussion today, because it's important for us not only to understand that there are some very specific aspects to this conflict um, and to how the perpetrators of it are trying to impact the lives of civilians in certain areas, um, certain ethnic groups, uh, and how they're trying to make sure that they're able to move the pieces as quickly as they can and shape dynamics as rapidly as possible um, before other actors might be able to, uh, to step in. Over. Thank you, Caitlin. And can you share some of these trends and highlights that you've been referring to, um, that you've been witnessing throughout your work in the past two months? Certainly. So among the things that we've seen, we've looked at the, for example, um, the uh, the strong use of air power by Sudanese armed forces, particularly in across Khartoum State. Uh, that has been that has been one of their primary modalities is to use the air power that they have uh, to try and wrest control back uh, from RSF and its allied forces um, wherever they can. There's also been uh, some some pretty compelling uh, evidence that we've been able to demonstrate, uh, and this has been in our last report on Darfur, where we showed the wholesale destruction of at least what we were able to document, um, 26 villages, uh, and, and in several cases going into cities. Um, that, of course, just over the past week, we've been able to document multiple additional. So if we were to update that report and put out more today, we'd probably be adding somewhere, at least, you know, between four to six additional locations um, with the same level of, of massive destruction, you know, massive raising of villages, of homes, um, the, you know, wholesale destruction of means of supporting civilian life. Um, that's the kind of thing where, especially in communities that are majority uh, non-Arab, uh, that's, that's the kind of thing that is incredibly important to be keeping track of, especially given how highly concentrated those efforts are to move in a systematic and widespread manner. Um, and I think it's important to note that we've, we at least have found at Yale Humanitarian Lab that uh, that this is consistent with crimes against humanity. Now, I do want to note that that is a finding that for us, our job is not to be lawyers on this. We are, our job is to find the data and to collect the evidence and present it in a manner that lawyers can use to then reach a legal determination. But it is crucial to appreciate that right now, um, 
there's a, you know, in terms of the, the type of action that needs to be taken, the level of attention that is due uh, to this conflict overall, the, and this especially the type of humanitarian intervention that is needed for civilian protection. Um, we believe that the responsibility to act is clear and um, it's quite manifest in all of the data and all of the findings that have been put out by any number of actors, not just us. Thank you, thank you, Caitlin. And I second your your point on uh, on the fact that we're all like different parts of the building blocks, and and hoping that this platform and others would serve as a as a stepping stone to next steps that are going to be taken by other people, in specialized in law or other domains, in order to um, at least go back in track of achieving justice. Um, Koskandi, you've been you've been a while in the scene. You've been quite active, and you've been following events since the early days of the crisis in Darfur in the early 2000s. You've also worked uh, specifically on atrocity prevention and justice related to Darfur. What are you listening for and tracking in the monitoring, reporting, and stories that are uh, that are the warn uh, and that are the warning signs and triggers for mass atrocities? Yes, hi everyone, and thank you, Johanna, uh, for the questions. Thanks, for, uh, audience, for turning in today. Uh, really good to catch up on a very sensitive, but also, you know, timely um, the events that are taking place in Sudan. Um, as you say, Johara Freedom House is being supporting civil society uh, in different aspects, including, you know, providing them grants, but supporting also through advocacy, human rights documentation. And as a result, you know, one of our partners, you know, the GESA and the Sudan Archive are here. And this is something that we are kind of uh, been doing in the past many years. Um, I think what with regard to question of what are the risks to the to the atrocities, based on the information coming from our partners, but also you know a person as person from Darfur who also personally follow follow this um, to what's happening to people so close to me uh, personally. Um, I think there is high risk for the for the for the for the atrocities, and you know not only just just mass atrocities of all different kinds in Darfur at this moment. And this is coming in from how do the conflict in Khartoum transpired in Darfur in a different ways. And I think the looking the conflict uh, trends in Khartoum doesn't give you a deep understanding of the dynamics took place in Darfur. And this is you know kind of showing the risk of the mass atrocities in several key points. First key point is the absence of the legitimate government. In Darfur, the major actor now is RSF. The Rapid Support Force controls almost 90% of the region. That includes the larger cities, but also all the, all the space between its Italian border in Aljunena, all the way to uh, Kass. And, 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 and this uh, shows that there is where the state institutions have been destroyed, there is no any systemic ways to replace some sort of systems um, to, to act into the service security of the people. The most of the people in those zones are hostage to RSF. No communication, no transfer. And this is not only direct killing, but an intentional indirect killing by mass starvation 
So the targeting of the hospital, medical facilities, targeting and looting of the markets and food stores. These are kind of destroying the means of survival of the community. And what that prepares in now and coming months is mass deaths and starvation. The second uh, risk of the of the atrocity is the history. Um, the conflict, if you see the map of the conflict and the cities from Aljunena, Zalingi, Kas, Kutung, Kapkabia, shows if you see the UN Security, UN Inquiry, Commission of Inquiry report in 2005, uh, 2006, that referred the Darfur case to ICC through the UN Security Council. It follows the same map, the current conflict follows the same map. The systemic targeting, as Caitlin says, from you know, rapid support force to their victims that are defined as ethnic tribes for African origins, that is Masalit in Western Ford, Four and the Gawas in the in the in the north. And I think the main targeting directed to this ethnic, meaning that the conflict in Khartoum doesn't have that aspect very strongly as it has in the, the history of the, the mass atrocities that happened in 2003 and the current map that connects the same and the impunity, lack of accountability and justice that have never happened in that four case, not even in the ICC, the case even that is still pending. So I think the risk of the, you know, impunity, lack of accountability, history of the atrocities, create additional scenarios that mass atrocities that are happen in Arjunena, but also in cities like Morne, are going to expand to other regions if actions is not taken as soon as possible. The, the, other, the other risk is, you know, no communication. So all of these people are hostage. So the outside world doesn't know. The, the, the initiatives that are taken by, you know, the, 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 the observatory by Caitlin is very helpful and very useful. And I think it needs also a local on the ground timely information to be able to connect the dots to further create an evidence for an action. And that's why, you know, the lack of the information and the absence of the of the of the of the of the of the direct and immediate information create additional risks that for instance, when the things happens, mostly in some of the areas, the information comes after two weeks, which is too late to react to it. Which is, you also have lack of information on what happens in that two weeks uh, before, because the routes are blocked, the communication are blocked, and it's very difficult to move from place to place. So that those are very much risk, and there are several triggers that can force a complicated situation. Over. Thank you. Thank you, Kuskandi, for shedding light on, on the events that have been taking place in Darfur now and 20 years ago and the similar similarities that are somewhat striking that the same things are happening over and over again, even worse this time around. Um, Mahasin, uh, following up on the conversation, in this dynamic of conflict, we are seeing a lot of misinformation and disinformation. How can Sudanese and those joining us from Washington or other places around the world distinguish between credible information and rumor? Thank you, Johara. Um, so I am in the dynamic of this conflict, I think um, the weapon of you know social media has been used by both by both conflicting parties. 
Um, and also, you know, in our culture in Sudan, um, we do have um, certain patterns of stories and spreading misinformation across easily. Um, so my first, um, I'm going to do like a very brief technical of how we do it in the Sudanese archive. Um, but also, um, I want to say first that we need to all check our biases, especially if you are Sudanese and you're working on Sudan. It's very easy for us uh, as human rights defenders or humans that are working um, in the context to be um, coming in with our own biases and looking at information. Um, so for us, what we do is that uh, we cross-verify sources. We have a list of trusted um, sources. We have uh, something that we call a source book. Uh, those are accounts of um, people, organizations, government, uh, you know, our Sudanese army, RSF, everyone. Um, and we try to press verify information from multiple resources before we think it's actually true. Um, we check also the evidence and the data. Um, so for us, we look for tangible evidence and verifiable data uh, that support claims that of, of things that are being spread around on the social media. Um, so we look for images, videos, um, that are more likely to be trustworthy. Uh, we try to recognize bias and manipulation. Um, we try to understand motives and patterns of behavior of people who are sharing the information, or accounts at least. That's going back into pages history, when it was founded, what are they using, what technologies are they using, how are they describing events. Um, we also uh, try as much as we can to consider the context. Um, so in, for us, we, we try to understand the broader context of the conflict itself, um, the historical background, um, and we try to understand and always confirm the geopolitical situation. Um, so because we understand that misinformation can thrive in complex environments where people lack comprehensive understanding of the situation. So um, misinformation can just thrive. Um, one fact, one misleading information, and then you have uh, uh, a whole thing on social media. Um, so we also try our best to consult with um, locals and our networks on the ground in Sudan. We try to engage with human rights activists, people from um, um, resistance committees, or anything. We we don't do close source, but we try to verify what we see by asking if this happened. Have you heard of it? Um, were you on the ground when? Um, it is really, really um, difficult right now to try to differentiate, but for us, we rely on data, we rely on um, the technical expertise that the archive and mnemonic has to distinguish between the facts and misinformation. And it takes longer for us because we are a very small team, a team of three. Uh, but for everyone else um, in Washington and everyone who's working in, on Sudan, um, 
Please use your mind and do not be certain on one source. Double check, verify, um, contact, reach out to us or Caitlin or anyone else um, and we will be happy to assist. Thank you, Mahasin. And indeed, we all have to um, be aware of our, our own biases as people who are working in Sudan or coming like from different from different backgrounds. Um, Caitlin, you've already shared a few highlights um, of the of the trends that you've been seeing um, over the past two months. Um, I was wondering if you can share some of the some of the findings of the reports that you you guys have been have been sharing. I know the reports are available online, but I think it's also important if you can show some of these. Um, highlights and also share with us uh, what does the conflict observatory do um, in order to like uh, mainstream like the, the informations that are being shared um, and then coordinating a monetary resource who are providing relief in the country. Absolutely. And thank you so much for that question. So one of the things that we do um, in addition to the work that we um, that we try to coordinate publicly with our releases uh, which we try to put out at least one report a week. That's the tempo that we're aiming for with public releases. We're also constantly working behind the scenes to um, try and coordinate with different partners. And I hope to try to be able to work much more closely um, with both Mahasan and Fiskandi. Um, and I, again, as uh, as Mahasan just said, please, anyone who is on this, uh, is part of this conversation, please do reach out to us. Um, we'll make sure, you know, my, my email uh, at Yale, it's simply um, caitlin.howarth at yale.edu. Um, please do reach out to us if you have information or want to get in touch with us and, and develop a, a relationship. Um, we, are, we are always working with uh, different organizations and trying to make sure that information is passing back and forth. Some of those are journalists. Uh, some are humanitarian organizations. Uh, we have to be very careful and very respectful of those, especially those who are working with survivors and people who are eyewitnesses. Um, there's, there are a lot of incredibly brave uh, people, um, brave Sudanese, who have been getting information out of the country and uploading it as soon as they have the opportunity, um, once, they're, once they're in a safe place. And, and for some of them, um, just because they may have crossed over a border does not necessarily mean that they are safe. So we take their security and the security of that information that they've worked so hard to protect incredibly seriously. Um, among the things that we do, so not everything that we necessarily collect is something that we will, we will publish uh, because of that. Um, we also try to make sure that everything that we can publish is something that is going to add unique value from a civilian protection perspective and that it will not only have a military intelligence value. That's incredibly important to do when we're in the middle of an active conflict. So again, um, we, we have always more data than what we'll actually publish uh, because we have to specifically edit out things that we, where we have a concern that one of the armed parties would simply use it to advance their own agenda um, and where it doesn't have a, a civilian protective um, value. One of the things I'm showing you right now, this is a, an interactive map um, that our team at Esri helped us to put together showing um, some of the 26 communities that I spoke about. This is Mysteri, um, and this shows some of the, uh, some of the uh, images. This is um, one of the before images that we have 
of Mysteri before the raising event um, that really obliterates so much of um, this incredible place. Uh, here, as you see it load, um, you'll see the the devastation. This is just, I mean, to say that the town is is really wiped out is putting it mildly. Um, it's it's hard to appreciate. I think sometimes this is, you know, some some folks might look at this and say, well, how do you know exactly what has happened here? When you've looked at satellite imagery for over a decade, this is very, very stark. Um, but I hope it's clear to anyone who saw that before image, which is taken and using the same type of imagery, um, the same type of camera, essentially, that this is a community that has really just been devastated in its entirety. Um, everything has been burned. Um, and there's there's really nothing left. There's the, the intent here is to wipe out um, to wipe out the town and its people in its entirety and for there to be nothing for anyone to go back to. Um, this is the type of data, though, that, as Kuskandi said, we, you know, we are constantly looking from the skies, often because there's no other alternative. And being able to access this kind of information in real time is still very difficult because we have to contend with clouds and other and other factors that really severely limit our access. I've been working on Sudan going back to 2011 in South Kordofan, Abia and uh, and in Blue Nile, and I have to say that in all of that time, we actually had more access on the ground, despite the fact that humanitarian organizations and others um, and human rights groups were extremely limited. Um, they'd been, you know, completely pushed out of those regions, but we still had better information um, on a day-to-day -day level for folks on the ground then than we do now. Um, that's how comprehensive the information blackout is. So it's uh, it, it is it is deeply challenging to be able to get to get through and to be able to document this, um, and the sheer range, the the geographic range of what we're trying to document, um, also means that we have we have our work cut out for us every single day. Um, here, of course, is the list of also with the speed at which um, RSF and its actors are working, especially throughout. Uh, Darfur means that there's there's so much to try and make sure that we're keeping that we're keeping up with, um, and simply trying to make sure that we're capturing every single day, uh, and again at so much speed. So it's um, I hesitate to say that it you know it's not that it can't be done. It can be done, but the sheer amount of resources that it takes to do this in a comprehensive way means that we, you know, I already am, I'm already leading a team that has some of the, you know, far better resources than we ever could have imagined a decade ago. And it's not enough. We need more, this, uh, this, the scope of this effort needs so much more than what it is getting. That's part of the urgent call to action um, that we're part of here. Back to you, Jahara. Thank you, Kathleen, and thank you for making that last remark. Um, so many humanitarian actors and, and even monitoring and reporting bodies have been have been asking people to contribute more. And hopefully on the event today, we have people in some of the agencies that can actually help push these efforts forward. Thank you for, for the presentation.
Uh, Mahasin, we know that the Sudanese who are monitoring, reporting, and documenting human rights violations and other conflict dynamics, um, that the work is the work their work is sensitive and dangerous. What situation are human rights monitors facing at the moment, particularly in Darfur? I know, I know, Caitlin have already briefly touched on that and the sensitivity of the issue, and that even for those who leave the country, it's not actually very safe. Um, so, if you can share a few a few comments on on what you've been uh, monitoring or following. Um, and you also, thank you, Dora. You also mentioned earlier um, in your introduction um, a very specific update on the situation of human rights monitors and defenders. Um, so it's really important to know that the situation in Darfur is highly complex and fluid. Um, the challenges faced by human rights monitors can vary depending on the specific context, the time frame, and the day. Um, since the, the, the outbreak of the war, um, we saw many initiatives of human rights defenders and others who work in peace building, trying to um, maintain the social cohesion and prevent an outbreak of war. However, um, things took a different turn. Um, so we we understand that I can I can say a very general uh, things. I've met a few of my friends and a few lawyers, journalists, and human rights defenders um, from that foreign Nairobi um, last week. Um, what we've been hearing is that there are targeting of human rights defenders, lawyers, and um, and government officials. Um, we all heard about the Darfur governor murder. Um, so the security risks, of course, are high. There is restricted access. So um, some of the regions of the in Darfur um, are simply, you know, trapped. Uh, as Koskandi mentioned, people are finding it difficult to um, share information. Um, there are intimidation and harassment, and the harassment uh, is basically um, can lead to self-censorship, but in the current case, is death. Um, um, and of course, there is impunity for the perpetrators. Um, there, there was no accountability before, and now it's very difficult to actually know who are the perpetrators. Um, so. Uh, we have two common words that are used for RSF and Arab militia, and no one actually can, can fingerpoint um, who's in charge, um, in which area specifically, and who's targeting human rights defenders. And yeah, um, this is what I can mention. And also, um, not only these challenges is that there are other mental and, and physical challenges is that we are dealing with um, a lot of personal events um, and the human rights defenders that are working in this field, uh, especially in Darfur, they have been working since 2003. They have they are generations of generations of actual lived reality and continuous um, hits to their own belief systems. So the question should be more into um, how can we cope to as human rights defenders? How can we 
um, mentally work, um, to have the, the proper mental support to continue doing this work. Um, it's, uh, to me personally, I think um, we're often looked at as sources of information, but not humans with experience with, with this information that are both personal, political, and it can actually um, live with us. Um, so yeah, that's something for us to all think about is that um, it's not the people that bring the information, it's that what that information means to them personally and, and how can we um, uh, use it? How can we um, make things go to a certain place? Uh, that we we, we, are, we finally see accountability work, justice, and we can finally see outcomes of the work that's been going on since before the conflict observatories, the Sudanese archive, and, and everyone else. Thank you. Thank you, Mahasim, for that thorough answer. I would also like to remind our audience to ask questions either in Arabic or English and to reach out to you or Caitlin for any um, verification or to just get credible sources, um, uh, uh, credible information from credible sources. Um, the information that Caitlin have shared earlier about reaching out to her and then also um, I think I think the, the Sudanese archive is, is available online for people to reach out. Um, going back to Yukoskundi, um, there is a body of work I'm practicing on preventing and addressing atrocities, including from Darfur's own experience. What do you see being activated at the moment from local communities to the regional and international community? And what are the gaps to turn from to turn from monitoring to action? And thank you. And I would say yes, um, just just taking to what my husband is saying, you know, the the limited space for the civil society. And for us, we really, really think that all of this, there is no gun big enough to solve Sudan problem. And it is proven in a several time in history um, uh, that all the problems always, when this, there is even the toughest regime have been changed by an unviolent movement, and that is always led by civil society and a stronger Sudanese uh, uh, nonviolent movement party that exists. I think there is several initiatives in that four region, for instance. Those initiatives are, you know, um, uh, trying at the tribal level, but also, you know, at different um, uh, aspects to try to ease the violence. And those mainly successful in some of the some of the areas, uh, like you know, being able to stop some of the attacks uh, in some of the the cities, mainly you know, uh, in Yala, for instance. Uh, then there is still some sort of uh, stability, despite that can also be deferred because there is less targeted population of the of the of the atrocities uh, in those cities. I think there is a body of the movement that is hold, you know, the Sudan before the Sudanese doesn't know what's the war now. Like people from Darfur, from Nuba Mountain, from South Kordofan have to explain what war means to people in North and people in Khartoum. In this April 15 war now, nobody tells nobody what is war, what war is. Everyone is so it. 
And I think this is a uniting factor for all the actors uh, to be able to stand together and it prevents these two generals from destroying the country. And I see, you know, how, you know, even not only in, Dar- in Khartoum, but in Darfur, how irresponsible for any sense, for the civilians, uh, you know, either victimized by RSF or by SAF. Even SAF itself is not responsible. They actually enjoy seeing their victims killed. Uh, the victims killed in in some of the cities like Zalingi, even in the Nordinena where the city is all destroyed, the safar is still there in their camps. There. And 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 that also makes us wonder if there, there is actual conflict between SAF and RSF with regard to the destruction that's happening in that fort. So I think there's a lot of opportunity. Some of the most strong is, is the body of the movement that really need to be reignited despite the limited space. The other opportunities are really not being exploited uh, so far is the existing different, you know, international and regional frameworks with regard to humanitarian intervention and civilian protection in Darfur, uh, justice and accountability, sanctioning of some of the leaders, particularly um, uh, in, 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 in areas where there is mass, mass atrocities like Junena. And, you know, Caitlin, you just showed the, the image of Mitmeri. And, and I will tell you, you know, I have, you know, there is other cities that I see in your map where my family is. And it is exactly what happened. Everything is destroyed. Uh, people are held hostage. They have to pay in the common pay money. Uh, I think thirty thousand um, Sudanese pound. I just can't understand. This is equivalent to fifty thousand um, dollars for protection money to to RSF because a state doesn't exist. It's the total chaos and total risk. So I think the prevention action uh, is really right now. And I think the U.S. itself has, you know, the new atrocity prevention approach. Too many tools not being, you know, very much underexploited so far with regard to what is happening, you know, in Darfur. It's expanding, for instance, in West Kordofan. The violence expanding very, very fastly to other fragile regions. And and even when we see East Sudan is very safe, it can easily go in a very, very just in a, a slip of a finger. To, to, to our violence. I think it is a time to stitch what it exists and try to, you know, make very difficult for the generals, either that is Burhan or Himeti, to make the choice of war uh, uh, more costly. And I think currently there is a lot of incentive, more incentive for the war than there is an incentive for no war. And because of that, it is very easy for generals to wage war. And I think the heaviest sanction possible for these actors um, to could be a very one of the useful tool and underexploited tool to be able to at least at this moment address some of the ongoing mass humanitarian disaster but also, you know, uh, uh, potential genocide and, uh, and, and, and war crimes and crimes against humanity that might happen further down. This rainy season coming, and we all know when it's rainy season, um, uh, means people already finished more of the food they had in the store, if there was any. The new season didn't come, there's also uh, the, the movement itself is difficult. 
and morbidity in that fall, particularly on all the agricultural communities, is high when it is rainy season. Malaria and other associated diseases, which can create, you know, very high humanitarian disaster deaths. So I think there is local tools, which is the strongest civil society body movement that needs to be reignited as an opportunity. There is civil society and civil administration, for, for instance, in that for context that can play a very strong role to really be able to play their role, a preventative role into some of the high-risk areas. Uh, for instance, the cities that are being destroyed, most of the people from different tribes stand together because they all have houses. They need a running state in those areas to be able to work. However, after destruction of city like Zalingi, like Yunena, it doesn't affect Masalit or for it affects everyone who was living. And I think there was a strong initiative for all of this and um, cross-ethnic, cross-tribes to stand together to prevent an attack uh, and violence inside the city. I think there is a need to reunite those fabrics very strongly and be able to create at least some sort of local shield that can open a window at least before, you know, things go to danger. But I think immediate humanitarian intervention, because I think food and starvation and medical um, uh, uh, destruction means or all other means of survival that have been destroyed is bridging that gap as immediate as possible can also help prevent some of the, you know, violence and force the complication. Over. Thank you, Koskandi. That, that was quite helpful. And I echo your, your notes on, on the long history of Sudan and the nonviolent action movement and the local peace building initiatives that have been taking place in this conflict and for a long time before. Um, we look forward to, to finding avenues to support such initiatives to thrive further in this context. Um, going back to you, Caitlin. Um, you've mentioned that some of the audience might know that Yale has been involved with satellite monitoring in other contexts and countries. How can this information be used in real time to activate atrocity prevention and response? And what is the uptake and degree of attention right now in Sudan? There's not nearly enough attention and uh, an uptake on Sudan right now. That's the, that's the simple answer. And there's so much more that can be done on atrocity response. I think that it is difficult for me personally uh, to use the word prevention when there is so much that is already happening. This is, you know, it, to talk about warning when we are, we're looking at atrocities that are underway and being successfully executed. That's the reality. Um, that being said, that does not mean that there is nothing we can do. There is so much that we can do. Um, and these tools can be utilized very effectively right now. Um, and in the days ahead to do so much to protect so many. So right now, here are some of the things I think we should be doing and that inter the international community needs to step up um, and take action on. We need to be utilizing these tools for daily, uh, daily monitoring and assessment on creating the, uh, a series of uh, evacuation options and contingency plans especially for areas where um, displaced persons are now moving too rapidly and, and gathering because cities like Nyala, Al-Fashir, um, these are all, 
yes, they, they because the, the places that people need to be able to get to to get out of the country, um, then access is being cut off so effectively, which means that other cities have become gathering points. That also means they become kill boxes. Um, and I hate to use that term, but that is that is how militaries, it's how armed actors see them. And people need to understand that that is what they are right now. So the more immediately we can turn those into evacuation zones effectively um, and get get boots on the ground to help get people safely out of there, to get humanitarian corridors established um, for meaningful evacuation, uh, that is what that is what uh, I, I don't necessarily think that there is an alternative right now for that kind of activity. And that can be supported with the tools that we have right now. Um, we need those options throughout the country too, because these are sophisticated armed actors who have the capacity to pivot um, just like that. So whenever something is working against them in one area, they'll go to, to moving uh, chaos and they'll work to achieve their agenda somewhere else. So we need to make sure that we have eyes on the situation throughout the country um, in Kordofans, uh, in Avier, uh, and of course, um, throughout the East, so that there isn't, you know, that there is a, basically a denial of opportunity for more chaos to be sown, for more civilians to be harmed. And of course, I think that there is a serious need to actually meaningfully uh, go after those, just as Kuskandi said, um, there's so much more that we can be doing to look for those who have evaded justice so far. Um, we know <laughs> that the, the lack of accountability for those who were already um, have warrants out for their arrest, who uh, were not brought to The Hague, um, as Freedom House and others called for, uh, that has paid dividends right now. Uh, it would be helpful to try and figure out where they are, but I think that the immediate needs right now to monitor all of the critical infrastructure um, to be able to attribute those attacks Right now, um, that's on water plants. Um, we see overwhelm, like we see targeted um, attacks on water infrastructure. It's one of the first things that has been happening, um, which, of course, as you know, creates much more um, capacity for waterborne disease to occur, um, especially potential for cholera outbreaks. Um, there have been uh, systematic and widespread attacks on medical infrastructure. That's one of the things that you'll see documented in our upcoming report on Khartoum which already um, has the vast majority of the country's medical infrastructure. Uh, these are exactly the things that we, we have to make sure that we are, um, that we are protecting the most fiercely uh, as, we, as we go forward, as well as the personnel who are connected to them. Um, and this is also something that we've seen called for uh, at, some, at some very high levels. Uh, we, I mentioned it earlier when it came to protection for those who are speaking out and who are providing um, some of this most critical evidence, we have to make sure that we have the ability to protect eyewitnesses um, when they do reach a point of some safety, uh, because the reach of some of these armed actors goes beyond borders. So if we don't have the meaning, if we aren't doing everything that we can to make sure that teams um, in refugee camps are providing everything that they can, uh, to protect these people, to move them further on to further points of safety, then we're not doing enough. 
Thank you. Thank you, Kathleen. And now we turn back again to Kuskandi for one final question from our end before we head to the to the question shared by our, our audience. Um, so Kuskandi, prior to the war, we were already talking about transitional justice that has not been addressed for Sudan broadly and therefore um, 20 years after the genocide. Why is hard to imagine justice in the midst of the ongoing violence? What needs to happen today to ensure path towards justice in the medium term? Uh, thank you again, uh, and I would, you know, just shortly second of the, the 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 what Kathleen and Mahasin said. I think uh, one for me one very important key to understand is, you know, and I, and and that the justice and accountability doesn't wait. There are several ways that I think with the situation right now in Sudan. Um, uh, particularly, you know, either in Darfur, but also in Khartoum and in other regions where, you know, in the, in the strong staff area where the, the, the activists is being targeted, but in Darfur where the mass atrocities exist, I think it is not a good time to say, oh, let's wait until there is kind of peace agreement and everything happens and we start justice and accountability. I think the most meaningful justice could be right now. And I think that is that with using and utilizing different tools, tracking all the enablers and supporters of the atrocities. And those includes, you know, those who aid, abide, all of the actors that are committing atrocities uh, in Sudan, uh, either within Sudan or within the regional countries. Sanctions, but I think, you know, it is also the time to utilize the ICC. At least start moving the case of Ahmad Harun for God's sake. And at least sentence. And I think that could at least, you know, um, show that I, I think the world is watching what we are doing today right now to the people in Mid-Mary, burning down their city, killing them in numbers, uh, you know, mass graves. This will be found one day. And we will, and I think it can be also a deterrent factor. So I think what one thing that it's been done is really to to try to to increase the monitoring, but also to effectively use the rich information we right now have. You know, bring more 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 witnesses and be able to advance some cases at least uh, to 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 for the accountability. Uh, so I think the one thing is yes, move the cases target the actors, and this is just, doesn't include, you know, the big names, but also the medium leaders who are currently on the ground conducting, commanding all of these atrocious actors to be to be held accountable. So I think one of these is using the existing frameworks of tools and tools of sanctions, but also, you know, international legal frameworks such as, such as ICC to open some of the cases are current, but also in the previous history of the atrocity in Darfur, to advance those cases for justice and accountability. Call those who are accountable, sentence the one you have placing at the ICC. That could create a deterrent. The second is that really, um, with regard to justice and accountability, what also plays role that if those conversations start, it increases, you know, the, the, the community, the solidarity, the local resilience, that at least there is somebody in the world who cares about us being killed or raped in a mass. And I think that resilience itself is what victims 
in confined in a confined by the conflict needs, even if that is you know um, uh, uh, people in Darfur or people in the Western Kordofan in the recent days, violence. I think those are the things that currently um, need to be done at the policy level um, and 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 urgent. And I think it could help at least at least to show the world is watching what is currently happening in, in, in Sudan. The second thing with the justice and accountability also has the other aspect, which is, you know, um, uh, uh, collective memorization, being able to create the tools for people to document, not only just for justice and accountability, to document their story and be able to have those collective memory. I think that is one of the healing process as well, while atrocity is happening. And that requires, you know, you know, creating at least safe zones in the region where, you know, internet is provided, communication is available, communities are able to be able to engage. Some sort of solidarity mechanism has been created to be able to address the current, but also very re- most recent uh, atrocities that happen in the region. Uh, I think that is all I could say, and uh, over to you. Um, thank you, Kuskandi. If I can just take... Uh one more or two minutes. Um, you've mentioned the ICC a couple of times, but we know that the current mandate of the ICC only extends to Darfur and doesn't cover um, other parts of Sudan, despite attempts to to um, expand it at the beginning of the war. Um, is there anything you could say to this? What can what local, regional, or international efforts can be done in this regard in order in order to make sure that you know all these atrocities that are taking place after 15th of April are also uh, accounted for? In addition, can you say anything about universal jurisdiction as a way um, to to like overcome the shortcomings and limitations of the current mandate of the of the ICC? Thank you. Yes, I think one one factor is I. I am not lawyer, but one thing is that the most of the commanders who are involved in the atrocities in Darfur are the one who is responsible in the atrocities outside Darfur. Either those through SAF, which is, you know, their leader, Rohan, was leading operations in Darfur, or either that is RSF, you know, the RSF commanders who are currently commanding, commanding the, the atrocities, either in Aljunena or Al-Zalinji, uh, Ali Yagub, who was one of the people who led the campaign, uh, summer campaigns, uh, in uh, the RSF summer campaign in Mara Mountains in 2014, summer campaign 2015, that led to mass atrocities in Jabal Mara area all the way up to the top of the mountains. And I think what is needed is to kind of create a mechanism to connect, to expand the investigation, to be able to do further indictment, but also using the current crimes to add additional charges. And I think that is what uh, at least can help to address some of the atrocities that are happening outside the court. And that is, you know, either that is Kordofan or either that is what's happening in Khartoum. Um, I think what what is being also missing with the other regional mechanism, for instance, uh, you know, the African Court of Peoples and Human Rights and other mechanisms that might be interested into intervening right now. But I think the most important things uh, with regard to, to to justice and accountability is one coordinated uh, evidence collection. Second, also coordinated advocacy and collective action. Third is, you know, international support, but also a stronger local voices from the victims 
that are uh, co consistently monitoring, but also following the question of justice and accountability, which is currently due to the war uh, is mostly being halted. Uh, everyone is running for their safety and security. Most of the people who work on documentation are targeted at risk, either if they are in Darfur or where RSF exists, or either if they are in Sudan's quote-unquote safer area where Sudan Army Force and national intelligence are very clearly and critically following up. And that also has the credibility of information if an activist is in, in RSF area and want to report more, we'll say aerial bombardment is happening than other things. If the in the other side is, oh, these people are taking our home. Even this in a, within the country happens. So I think we really, that is because of the risk that, you know, some of the activists have to go and have to navigate to be able to obtain reports. Thank you. Thank you, Kuskandi, and thank you to all the other panelists for all the information that you've provided. I will now turn to the questions that were posed by our audience. I believe some of them were in Arabic, but they're not translated in English. So hopefully you, you somewhat find your, your questions in the, in the translation that I have. I've also tried to group the questions in order um, to have time to answer as many as possible. Um, each panelist would have three minutes to try and speak to the to the proposed questions. So for Mahazin, I think um, you might be best suited to answer these questions unless yeah, someone else has an addition. So the first question is about um, ways to help in the individuals or people um, asking, uh, working on, 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 on collecting open source data in Sudan. Uh, how can people assist you or contribute to, to the work that's been done? And the second question is, are there much safer countries or communities for Sudanese refugees to turn in, uh, to turn to, or is there a mass exodus overseas? You have three minutes, please. So to us at the archive, we are currently working on and really trying to um, build uh, a Sudanese task force that works on open source um, investigations. We have been um, hosting capacity buildings and um, sharing uh, our methods uh, of research with uh, uh, a variety of uh, journalists, human rights defenders, um, etc. Um, what we would uh, love to hear from people and how people can help us is that we can we are we can always look for um, collaborations. Uh, please reach out to us, communicate with us um, if you are working on certain investigations, if you need proper assistance in geolocation, chronolocation, um, if you need advice or um, work done across different platforms, because the Sudanese Archive is not separate from Mnemonic. Mnemonic is uh, the umbrella organization for um, three other archives. Uh, one of them is the Ukrainian archive, the Yemeni archive, and the Syrian archive. Uh, we, the organization itself has a, a collective memory and knowledge um, on using open source information for um, accountability. Um, all of those are lessons learned that we are um, happy to share, and we are willing to collaborate with other people to see similar results for Sudan. Um, 
ask for safer places to, for people refu- to, to take refuge, refuge in. Um, I've had a very different, I've had a, personally, I, I don't know how to answer this question. Um, um, to me, um, this is my first time actually leaving Sudan, um, taking refuge somewhere else. Um, it was easier for me moving from Khartoum towards the eastern states and then um, crossing the border um, to Ethiopia. Um, I think it depends on everyone's location. Um, there are people who look for different things. People look for um, places where they don't have, where they don't face language barriers, places where they have relatives, places where they have been before. Uh, But what I can say is that um, it is always safer to to make sure that your physical well-being, you're physically um, in a place and you're still alive. Um, other than looking at other factors of language and stuff. There are, there are barriers, of course, but um, eventually it's a, it's a hard circumstance, so we don't know. Um, I honestly don't know how to answer that question better than this. Um, I don't have recommendations for which is safe because I don't see um, a place that is safer than, than what Sudan used to be, at least for me. Um, but I think uh, other people can jump, jump in on this answer. Thank you, Mahathir, and thank you for sharing your, your experience. I, I believe, yeah, to, uh, as, as a Sudanese um, displaced person myself, I believe, yeah, there is no easy answer. But I would say that um, for us who managed to leave, it was a matter of privilege, those of us who had resources to leave, those of us who were able to speak languages at neighboring countries, and in some cases, those of us who were able to pay for a visa online to get entry to that country. At the moment, there is no um, available resorts for Sudanese people to legally go to that are easier and accessible for those who are less privileged um, in, in the terms that I've just mentioned. And uh, And I would say, no, there are no... There, there is no travel overseas at the moment because people can't simply cross the border. So yeah, pe- people are not going overseas for, for that for that matter. Um, I'll turn to Caitlin, and, and you would also have three minutes. Um, there is a question about whether there is um there is a way that um, the U.S. government, and I don't know if you can speak for the government, but it's more technical that um, if there are um, tech companies such as Google to provide satellite imaging in areas where it's difficult to report atrocities, and um, and also, if you can, if you can jump in on this one, um, how can the U.S. and the international community engage more with the government of Sudan in order to mitigate the effects of conflict and prevent potential spillover? Um, if you can, if you can answer any of these, then then that's great. Otherwise, I think USIP would be interested in in having longer conversations regarding um, international community involvement. So I'll definitely start by saying um, I I certainly do not speak for the U.S. government on this. Uh, I can only speak in my capacity from uh, from Yale. The um, I'm I'm certain that there are that there are you know there's a fair amount of of outreach and constant dialogue that's going on, um, but that's not something that I'm privy to between uh, the State Department and government of Sudan. Um, the 
and of course, like the the sheer amount of complications right now in terms of who is representing what and who is a is considered a credible representative for which uh, ministries and so forth. All of that is incredibly complicated at the moment. Um, the what I can speak to is I, I think on the issue of the tech companies and who's capable of providing of providing what. That is something that um, where there is a fair amount of facilitation and, uh, and companies are doing everything that they can um, to the, as far as I'm aware, um, to image as much as possible. Uh, we are working as rapidly as we can and sort of with our own contacts um, internally at those companies to advocate for more tasking, um, which is the process of sort of, you know, like getting as much imagery um, taken every single day. Uh, to be for that to be collected um, and disseminated as broadly as possible uh, for those that are doing this critical humanitarian work. So not just for us to access, but for for all of those um, who are doing this to be able to access. Thank you, thank you, Caitlin. Um, and then Kuskandi, there there are a few questions that I think you've already answered about um, the worry of um, um, recurrence of, of genocide in Darfur and so on. However, um, I I wish you can take some of these. Like um, there is this question um, about whether Sudan is worried about recolonization when conflicts arise and outside resources are utilized to settle the conflicts. Uh, it can be road to recolonization and not a road to more freedom and autonomy. So the question is whether, you know, you see such trends of recolonization. And then the other question is, um, uh, what is your perception of dealing with the violations of the RSF? You partially answered that. And do you see any effective means other than supporting SAF to counter RSF, according to the, to the person who asked the question? And you have three minutes as well. OK, thank you. Yeah, I would say with regard to to uh, colonization or recolonization, I, you know, the most dangerous colonization is when you are a failed state and you depend 100% on a people to give you aid to survive. And currently, we have a country with over 40 million, and we are almost 80% or 90% uh, need aid to survive, meaning that we. <laughs> accepted or not, we are totally dependent. Um, and I think that is where we become a burden to everyone. And I think, you know, uh, with, uh, with, with that regard, I just want to say that um, uh, we, have, we have to have two. We have also, as a, you know, as a, in the, in the, as a local level to have some of the policies. But I think for the Sudanese people, they can be, you know, they can be very, very, very much uh, uh, learn from the history uh, of the, of the of the experience um, on on how people are resilient, how state building will be coming, and that the the future did not re relies on us, you know, kind of sticking together and you know finding some solutions from ourselves, and those shouldn't be a military solutions. Um, the second thing on the on the on the RSF and stuff. I think there is, you know, this April 15 war create a false dichotomy. The false dichotomy is that there is nothing else. There is RSF, there is stuff. No, there is a lot in the middle. Uh, and there is a body of movement that actually removed RSF and stuff going together with the Bashir and put them 
outside the pole. And that's the body of Sudanese movement. And I think, you know, creating these two ideals, RSF or RSF doesn't, you know, itself not uh, not a Sudanese uh, uh, democratic transition question. But I think with, with regard to, 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 to Darfur and the RSF violence, for instance, is more concentration because currently the South doesn't have, not just doesn't have power, doesn't have any interest to protect civilians in Darfur. They actually enjoy, they go and enjoy. In some of the cities, actually South get out of their barracks and come and go to, with the RSF friends, loot whatever and commit the crimes. So it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense just because RSF is the main actors committing the crime. Be criticizing that because all of these are commanders under the command of the RSF, criticizing that doesn't necessarily mean supporting Assaf. And I think that is one thing to be clear because if you ethnically target people and kill them and burn their houses down, and you can't create democracy, that just doesn't make a sense. And that is very naive to believe. But I think one additional thing that I want to add is with regard to, to, to these two dynamics. In 1985, Sudanese, our great, uh, you know, grandfathers went and stormed Khartoum. They cut the head of the Gordon Basha, the one of the strongest military force in the world at that time. What happens after a few years? The royal forces came back, stormed Khartoum, and ruled Sudan for over 90 years. In 19, um, you know, in 1964, we removed it a boat. We have a, in 1985, the Sudanese have the Jafar Numeri, one of the strongest dictators in the continent. We have SPLM with more than 15 or 17,000 military fighting Numeri. Who removed Numeri? As the civil society and nonviolent movement. The same with the Bashir, 30 years, we have more than five armed movements in Darfur, South Kordofan, Blue Nile, with forces combined for over 100,000 active military forces fighting. Who removed Bashir? The nonviolent movement. The big arms that exist in Khartoum and Al-Fashir is not a solution to Sudanese problem. They only promote the greedy division of those who hold the arm. And I think it's the time for Sudanese to reunite their voices, even how limited the space is. The gun have never solved our problem, and it will never solve Sudan problem. And everyone is a political party or resistance committee thinking I will cheer this one to help me carry out to the freedom. No, it just help you to carry you to its own a new jail and a new prison, and also reverse the country's future. And I think it is a time for, you know, for all the civic actors to reunite their voice. It's time for solidarity healing, and it is a time for a collective actions to be taken. And there is a very big vacuum of the voices that are being silenced after, after April 15, because now those people with the big guns are the one we see on the TV, we see them on the video, we cheer them. But every time you cheer them, you actually, you know, sending a signal uh, of, you know, uh, anti-democratic signal. And I think this is something that everyone and all Sudanese need to learn the way out 
It's not big arms from Russia. It's not big arms from Egypt. It's not big arms from Emirates. The way out is the loudest voices on the street. We need democracy and nonviolent movement. And that's all my remark and over to you, Bob. Thank you. Thank you, Kuskandi, for reminding us of the strength of the Sudanese nonviolent movement across the years. Um, thank you, Mahasin and Caitlin, for taking time of your busy work schedules to be here on this platform today and answering all the questions that were um, mentioned. As I mentioned earlier, USIP would be interested in having uh, similar platforms where more issues are being discussed. There were questions on civilian platforms. There were questions about international communities engagement and so on. We would be interested in taking these conversations further. Um, and I know we can spend hours and hours talking about the current issues in Sudan. Uh, as for today, our time has come to an end. Thank you uh, to our audience across the world, uh, to our interpreters who made sure that uh, we include as many people as possible, and to the team that has been supporting uh, bringing this to life. Um, until, until another time, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.